0: Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by
1: DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Katie Stubbs, and I'm a communications officer for Alzheimer's Research UK, and I'm pleased to have been invited to host this podcast for the Dementia Researcher website. So today I'm up in Harrogate at the Alzheimer's Research UK annual conference, and I'm pleased to be joined by three early career researchers. Um, some of whom are working within the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh. And today what we're going to talk about are microglia. So for those of you who don't know, microglia form part of the brain's immune system and are key players in controlling brain health via multiple mechanisms. These mechanisms include releasing cytokines, phagocytosis of debris, synaptic pruning, and forming the gliovascular unit. In neurodegenerative diseases, like dementia, nearly all physiological microglial functions stray away from homeostasis and contribute to disease pathogenesis. So you can see why research in this field is important and why it's been such a hot topic at our conference this year. So I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Katie Askew, Dr. Mike Daniels and Dr. Macus. Juris, did yeah, I get it right? Yeah, that uh, yeah. yeah, that was, really was really Juris, there we go. Um, so just to start off with, if we take it in turns, just introduce who you are a little bit about yourself and why you started working in dementia.
0: Okay. Hi, I'm Katie. Um, I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I've just started my first postdoc working in the Horsburgh Lab, and we're really interested in the mechanisms that contribute to vascular cognitive impairment, so a form of dementia that has a strong vascular component and is linked to reduced blood flow in the brain. So my background is very much in microglial biology. Uh, I did my PhD looking at microglial turnover in the healthy brain and in aging. And what we're trying to do is figure out exactly what microglia are doing in a mouse model of vascular cognitive impairment with a particular focus on their turnover and also phenotyping these cells to see what's going wrong in disease. Cool. How
2: about you, Mike? Great. Uh, hi, I'm Mike. I'm a postdoc also at the University of Edinburgh. I work in what well, we'll discuss later, which is the UK Dementia Research Institute. And I work for the lab of Barry McColl. And in the McColl lab, we're really interested in microglia, as is the whole reason of this podcast. Uh, and my specific interest in terms of microglia is is what's called lysosomal function. So how microglia Eat stuff. How they how they go around the brain. They eat debris. They eat lots of things. And how does that change what they do? And how important is that in neurodegenerative disease? How does it go wrong? How can we fix it? Um, my background is is probably more of a macrophage, so immune cells from outside the brain. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Manchester, where we worked on an immune complex called an inflammasome, which is something that microglia and macrophages can secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines and can be extremely damaging. And what's interesting for me is, is now I'm kind of putting on our hat working, working in Edinburgh because we're interested in how microglia really may be protective in some senses. And really the message is that, that they need to be retuned in some senses and we need to work out exactly how to do that.
1: Mm, cool. And Marcus.
3: Hi, I'm Akis. So I'm a PhD student, so I'm not a doctor yet, and I'm saying yeah because I'm hopeful to eventually pass my viva. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm working uh, also at the Dementia Research Institute, and I'm working with Tara Spires-Jones and Barry McCall. Um, so both of them are um, two PIs of the Institute, and the project is a collaboration between the two where we are trying to understand how these metric glial cells That, as Mike said, really like to eat things, um, how actually that eating can maybe go wrong in dementia, like in Alzheimer's disease, um, and how that can lead to the loss of synapses. So we know that the synapses, which are the points of connections between the different brain cells, which is effectively how cells communicate, are actually being lost in Alzheimer's disease. And we uh, believe that by stopping the synapse loss, we can stop um, the progression of the disease. Mm
1: -hmm. Cool. So I think you already kind of... Touched a little bit on this, but you're all working on slightly different aspects of that biology. Um, so we're just going to probe a bit more into that now. So, um, why are microglia so important, and why is neuroinflammation as a whole, as, as a topic, become such a hot area of focus within the dementia research community?
0: I think typically people used to think of microglia as just sitting quite statically in the brain, you know kind of clearing debris if it's there, but not really doing a lot. And with the, the GWAS studies that have been published um, in the last kind of decade or so, we know that there are a lot of immune-related genes that are um, implicated in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So research focuses really shift to kind of figure out, well, do the microglia have a causal role? Are they shifting from, you know what we would consider as a neuroprotective phenotype, so their typical housekeeping functions in you know, protecting your neurons from harm, keeping them um, signaling as they should, to a phenotype where they're actually damaging the cells around them and actively contributing to that, um, uh, that process of neurodegeneration. And I think you know, we've made a lot, of, a lot of steps towards understanding that, but there's still a long way to go. And I guess one of the biggest debates in the field is this neuroprotective versus mm-hmm. kind of damaging phenotype.
2: Yeah, I think that makes it really, really exciting to be working in this field, because, yeah, sure. because we're learning, we're learning so much so quickly. I think when it comes to microglial research, it's like every every kind of time my my paper alert comes out, like there's another paper and someone someone's redefining how we thought these cells functioned, and there's so much still to understand, um, which is which is really great. It kind of makes it hard, and it means that sometimes there's there's controversies in the fields, there's disagreements, there's, there's often two camps almost Some people believing that microglia can be broadly detrimental in neurodegenerative disease, other people thinking they can be broadly beneficial and obviously as it always is, it's going to be a complex kind of mixture of the two. Um, but that, that's why it's really exciting. And another thing to touch on in terms of why microglia is you know, so exciting and why people are so interested in that, just in the context of neuroinflammation, in addition to the GWAS hits is, is PET studies, so studies showing um, we, can use, we can use positron emission tomography ligands and show that microglia are becoming activated and they're becoming activated very early, earlier on than you would see any of the cognitive impairments that we see in dementia. Uh, and again, like there's just there's more and more evidence showing that they're playing not just a role but but a causal role because that's what the, the genome-wide association studies would suggest is is you've got variants in microbial, you're changing their function. That's leading, so that really does imply they are they are playing a causal role. Uh, and yeah, it's a really exciting place to be working.
1: So one of the things I, I think always comes up when you talk about any anything is is it good, is it bad? But also, is it always that way? And I think this is one of the things that I'm hearing more about is how that that role that they uh, have in, have within the brain. They can be both good and bad, but also that can can change over time. Is like how does your work kind of take that into consideration in, in what you're doing.
3: So for sure, um, there's been a big shift in the field where um, people used to believe that macroglia were just bad and now we appreciate that they're not just bad, they are actually really, really important for the, the normal function of the brain. Um, for example, in my field, uh, it was until very recently that we didn't know that um, there's this process called synaptic pruning, where you know how kids learn really, really fast, and it's because they get so many synapses that form in the developing brain, um, but you don't actually need all of those synapses. So for many, many years, and we know that those synapses then go down, but we didn't know how this happened. And this has been sh- now shown to happen through synaptic pruning, where microglia can actually go and eat away the synapses that are not required. So this is um, absolutely essential for normal brain development. But then we believe the same process that is, was once um, really important is now part of um, how this disease progresses. And this is what we are trying to understand. Why is this happening? Why is this developmental signature almost reawakening in disease? Um, so absolutely, you know, you, you, can, you can't say that uh, they're only good or only bad. They exist in a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And we have to appreciate that they can be both things at the same time.
2: I guess the question is I think it's something again that I don't think we really fully understand, is like what what are they supposed to do in health? And uh, which is crazy because like that's something that you'd be like, that should be so obvious. Like for, for most things. It's very simple. You, you you know what it's supposed to do in health and then you look at what it does differently in disease and then you bring it back to what it's supposed to do in health. And it it seems with, with microglial cells, like probably not uniquely but quite different to a lot of other disease contacts, is we really don't know what a good microglia does. (laughs) Uh, And I think that's something that some of your PhD work and like the stuff in your lab was touching on, that sort of stuff. And and actually I guess stuff that you're doing now, Katie. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that makes it even more interesting to work that out. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, I think my, my research focus is very much, I want to know how cells are dividing, how they're dying, kind of just their normal turnover and how that changes in disease. So we know that microglia kind of they have a relatively low baseline rate of division um, and this is coupled with their cell death to make sure you have a constant population of microglia in your brain throughout your lifetime and as you age. Um, but we also know in a number of different neurodeg- neurodegenerative diseases, such so as Alzheimer's, ALS, prion diseases, we get a huge increase in microglial proliferation um, and there have been a lot of studies, I say a lot, handful of studies recently, um, that have also looked at how the profile of these microglia changes in disease. So we know that they're proliferating, but we also know that their kind of molecular identity or kind of, yeah, their molecular identity will change from what we call a homeostatic phenotype, so something that's very associated with their baseline turnover, their sensing properties of the brain, to a disease-associated phenotype. Um, And I think what's really interesting from my perspective, if... If you block the proliferation of cells in a disease we seem to alleviate some of the symptoms but what i want to know is whether it's that disease associated phenotype is it the proliferation of those cells that we're blocking is that what's sorting everything out or is it just generally if you change all of the microglia Mm -hmm. is is that having having an effect and i think we've still got a long way to go to understand what you know our disease associated populations of cells are doing how how they are different from the homeostatic because we still don't understand really what the what the the change in the molecular profile actually mean for the cell functioning as a
1: whole and um, there's a lot of questions that we don't have answers to at the moment yeah i guess that also has quite strong implications when we think about potential therapeutic strategies Absolutely. as if if you have this unhealthy population and a healthy population certain functions may be up and mm-hmm. others may be down and actually is this, I guess, the, the understanding we all have that it's not going to be a kind of one drug, one so, one drug. It's going to, you're going to have to target even one cell type and multiple different ways. Yeah, yeah. Or even, you know,
0: a subpopulation of one cell type, right? Like we
1: need to, I suppose it would be
0: great if you can find a drug that's specific for your disease associated cells that might be causing all the damage. If we can just, you know, either get rid of them or stop the transition towards that disease Mm -hmm. state, that would be fantastic. Maybe that will sort everything out. We don't really know. But I think, yes, there's a lot of things that need to be unpicked. It's not as simple as saying, you know, all microglia are bad. We can target all microglia and solve the problem. There's definitely a lot more complex than that, and I think a lot of people realize that now. And it's it's good to be working in a in a field where people, I think, understand the intricacies of the challenge they're trying to address.
1: Mm. So you've already mentioned, Mike, PET scans, and that's one of the ways that people can understand microglia. But what are some of the kind of tools and techniques that you use in your work that are helping you to kind of unpick these questions?
2: Um, So we work mainly on mouse models of well we use mouse microglia um, we have some mouse models of, of what are broadly kind of can model the symptoms of neurodegenerative disease I would suppose um, these models can be really really great but can't be stretched too far in terms of what they mean and um, we use some models where there's overexpression of some of the key proteins like amyloids and tau and in those models we do see responses of microglia uh, we don't really know whether those responses are beneficial or detrimental yet. Uh, there's all, there's kind of um, th- these microglia that come out from these models, uh, people have termed them disease-associated microglia, which is kind of one of these things where people probably knew about it for a long time, but no one really coined a fancy name for it. Mm. Um, but the, the general consensus is that these are protective. And the evidence for that comes from looking at some of the genes that they express and linking those genes back to, for example, the GWAS studies that Katie mentioned earlier. Uh, And what we see is that the genes that are important in driving these disease-associated microglia, some of them are the same genes that are variant mutations and and they're non-functional in Alzheimer's disease. So what that basically suggests is people who have non-functional variants in these genes can't produce these disease-associated microglia those people also have dementia, therefore, disease associated and microglia must be mm. protective. Mm. Probably more complicated than that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but that's that's the kind of general general theory uh, at the moment. But, but we're really trying to unpick how that happens. We're really trying to unpick how these cells actually, like what molecularly goes leads to you having a normal microglia, homeostatic mm. microglia. It's you know like go around its brain and I'm doing actions here for a podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of hand waving going on. <laughs> I'm being a microglia, um, uh, and uh, and it must meet something at some point mm-hmm. in its on its merry way, uh, and that changes it to to turn into this disease associated microglia, and we don't know if that's something that it's touching, we don't know if it's something that it's eating, we mm-hmm. don't know if it's another cell type in the brain because this is again and something that I think we should, in this podcast, like you saw that microglia and that's that's obviously <laughs> for the nature of the podcast, that's the whole point of the podcast, but we're all fully aware of, of how complex this is and, and how things like your vasculature endothelial cells, astrocytes, you know, and, and all, even infiltrating cells can, can be involved in all these, but we, we really have no idea what's causing these cells to turn into this phenotype. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, how about you, Makis?
3: So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, we want to cure Alzheimer's disease and all these diseases more in humans rather than in mice. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the problem for us. And we're very lucky in, in Edinburgh and in Mutara to work on human postmortem tissue. So mouse models are really, really great to try and understand the molecular pathways that lead to this because many of those can actually be conserved between mice and humans. But actually, um, if if we see something in mice then we cannot apply to humans, that doesn't really help us much. Mm-hmm. So in my project in generating the lab we tend to use the human post-mortem tissue in, in, in order to to see what's going on in the brain. Are the data that we see in mice actually translatable? Are they translating to human research? Is there something for us to look there? Um, so this is I think something that needs to be more popular because um, Again, we're very lucky to have um, really great donation programs in Edinburgh and a green neuropathology team, but the more popular this becomes um, Mm. in more countries, the better it's going to be to actually make this research more um, applicable to treating the Mm. disorder and not just treating mice.
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed. So I guess you're taking tissue from healthy controls, but are you also able to look across the different disease stages, say if it's like BRAC staged or...
3: Yeah, so we have this great neuropathology team in Edinburgh, uh, led by Colin Smith, um, and they do a lot of characterization where we get the different BRAC stages, uh, different thal stages, Uh, we get cause of death, a lot of other variables Mm -hmm. that may affect um, the the, the tissue and things um, that could affect the research. Um, And then we try and stratify depending on what our question is, for example... I'm looking at one of the genes that are um, increasing the chances of getting Alzheimer's disease. So apolipoprotein E4, which is the greatest genetic risk factor for late-onset Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, so we get all of this information, and that way we can actually answer these questions.
1: Cool. That's, that's quite nice. So bringing it all together from uh, lots of different methods to understand more. So with it, with it being such a hot topic, where do you see that the kind of the field of research moving what are the big questions that are next to be answered
0: i think that's a really good question um i mean i think it depends on what you're interested in personally as a researcher right obviously the proliferation side of things is very much my bag um and i think that we have a long way to go in terms of uh deciding whether that's going to be a viable therapeutic target in humans so in mice we know that that works we can we've got um a very well characterized proliferative pathway in microglia we can target that with small molecule inhibitors you know proliferation goes down pathology goes down fantastic cognitive decline kind of not reversed but improved mm-hmm. um in humans they possibly going to talk absolute rubbish now because I can't remember if there has been a trial that's failed or mm. not, or if there's a trial in progress that's coming to completion. But I think it's, it's the same with a lot, of, a lot of different things, you know, because we're, as, as Mike and Mike have said, because we've, you know, sorted things out in mice, that doesn't necessarily mm. mean that's going to work well in humans. Um, I'm also really interested to see what comes out of the identification of these disease associated microglia. Um, because I think that seems to be the most the most feasible route to defining pathways that are actually, you know, either causing disease. I think I'm talking rubbish at this point. But I, yeah, I think identifying this phenotype that's associated with disease is it's, it's really interesting, right? It's going to give us more targets to investigate therapeutically. But one big caveat is that we actually don't know the function of a lot of the genes that are associated with these disease to mm. It sells, right? Yeah. yeah. There's, no, there's, yeah. you know, RNA sequencing studies are fantastic, but you get thousands and thousands of genes. It's like, oh, this gene isn't un- annotated. We have no idea what it does. So then you've got to go down, you know, the whole route of characterising the gene, finding out what it does functionally, yeah. then seeing if you can target it therapeutically. I think we've we've defined some great things, but also there's about a thousand other questions that have come out of all of that research. Mm. Um, so, I, I'd like to, you know, follow that up, well, not personally, I'd like to see people following that up, <laughs> yeah. you know, find out, find out, you know, what these genes are doing, how that might help us in finding uh, treatments mm. for the dementias.
3: And that's absolutely important because, um, as you said, like th- there has been so many clinical trials that have failed and because they were looking at um, generally trying to reduce inflammation and um, they thought of pro-inflammatory macroglia as just being detrimental mm. and really bad. But as we said, this is not the case. Mm. So. Those um, stereotypically thought as pro-inflammatory microglia being bad is not actually the case. You need those traditionally pro-inflammatory microglia for normal functions. Mm. So so many clinical trials said, well, reduce the microglia or reduce inflammation, that wouldn't help because uh, it hasn't done anything. But as Katie said, we need to understand what those microglia are, mm. which microglia, when do we intervene? Because mm-hmm. Um, I think we were having so many talks in ARK now about this in the conference, and I I thought that kind of relates also to other diseases, like for example, most of our infections where you get um, you, you know you get a shot and you prevent so many diseases or vaccinations. Mm. If you get a vaccination after you have the disease, yeah, it's not going to work. Yeah. So we need to understand when do we actually have to intervene, um, and I do think that intervening specifically to is going to be the next big thing, mm. which we haven't been able to properly yeah. do in human clinical trials. Yeah, I guess it's... I mean, like, in terms of
2: getting a vaccination after you've had a disease, like, the reason that a, a smallpox vaccination after you've had smallpox doesn't work is because you died from smallpox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't necessarily... I think, I think this concept of, like, it being too late in terms of inflammation... I mean, look at for something like rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Like, that people... You, we don't have to find people before they become inflammatory and give mm-hmm. them anti-inflammatory drugs before onset of symptoms to treat them. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the drugs for rheumatoid arthritis have been have been really, really good. And they're treating people that have inflammation. Mm. The, the question is, and this is what everyone's really struggling with, is the brain is really weird. Like, <laughs> stuff is super different. I mean, for, for years, no one could tell the difference between a microglia and a macrophage. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and yet, functionally, they, they do such different stuff. Yeah. absolutely. But, like, looked, I, I mean, people even... Like, we're looking there's kind of like five genes basically that people can, can use to distinguish between these two different cells. And it's like, well, if they're that similar kind of genetically, but they do such different stuff, it's like, it's no wonder we're struggling. Mm-hmm. So I think you, I, I worry when people saying like, Oh, it's too late after the inflammation, it's too late. Like I think, I think as conceptually targeting inflammation, like can work and you don't have to do it before, like really, really early. But I think because the brain is so complicated, uh, it, that's making life
1: much harder. Yeah, I think it's, it's understanding the dynamic nature of the changes that, that the population of cells might be going through and then knowing that actually if you're treating at a later stage, you're probably more trying to prevent any collateral damage that they're causing or if you're going at an earlier stage, you're trying to turn them off from going down that pathway and triggering off other things. So I think, yeah, the dynamicness exactly. is, is really important. Yeah, because
3: that's, that's a great point because if you've gone to a point where you've lost so many of these neurons... Uh, the brain is notoriously bad for not being able to repair itself. Mm-hmm. So if you lost those neurons and it's been too long, then you can actually bring those neurons back. But what you can do, and this is why we're so interested in synapses, is you can form new synapses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if the synapses have died, yeah. there is a way to make new synapses, but it's really, really difficult to make new neurons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the whole point of, yeah. of uh, trying to stop it because before it gets so f- far down the line. So if you have some of the inflammation, it may be great to stop it then. But when you've lost so much of the brain, it's really striking when you look at a human brain um, of Alzheimer's because you see so much of Mm. it has gone away. It's one of those
2: real images that really gets you, isn't it? Absolutely.
0: I think it's a good point because what we've got to think about is you've got a cure and then you've got treatments that will slow things down, right? So obviously if you've lost a significant number of neurons we can't repair that damage but we can slow progression we can alleviate symptoms like we might be able to maybe support new synapse formation or at the very least you know if microglia are are um, pruning more synapses than they should be in disease we can slow that down so that's the kind of thing at least my personal bugbear with some discussions about treatments is people seem to be shifting towards we have to find a cure which I do agree with but Mm. I think it's also important not to take light away from the fact that we need things to alleviate symptoms we need treatments for those you know that we can't cure because they already Mm. have a disease that's progressed far enough and I think it's worth just bearing both of those both of those things
1: in mind you know. Mm. So thinking about it in another way, so like biologically, there's a lot of um, interest in in this particular area. But um, here in the UK, we've been really fortunate in the last few years to see some kind of new programs of work and new ways of working coming on board. And so um, a couple of you guys work for the UK Dementia Research Institute. So um, for those listeners that haven't heard much about the UK DRI before, um, this was set up in the last, I think, three or four years um, and it's got a hub um, based at UCL, but it's also got other centres around the UK. So you've got Cardiff, Cambridge, and Edinburgh, and then there's also Imperial and King's in London as well. So you guys um, are based at the Edinburgh one. Yeah. So, as researchers, how have you seen things like this help to support these expanding areas of work?
3: It's been, it's been really, really great because Varga um, Struper, who's the director of the UK DRI, Um, is actually um, comparing this to not us being five different centers, but being all part of one big building, so different floors of a building. Mm -hmm. And when you're part of it, you actually realize that this is really true. So in terms of things that go on in collaboration, it's really, really amazing. Um, And you can get so such great feedback from other people. You can meet, um, for example our first connectome that we had for the DRI in September I met a great collaborator who we are now uh, doing this uh, part of a project where I was telling him what I'm doing and he said this is exactly what I need for a new paper that I'm doing I got back reviews this is what we need so it's absolutely amazing because mm. that way you, you you wouldn't really be able to do that um even at another conference because you have feel so close to everyone there you, mm. it's easier to talk about it
1: yeah that's yeah. right.
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of alluding to what Marcus
2: is saying. It's very nice, um, not feeling like you're on the same team as people in in the same way. So, like one of the best things about the three of us all working together in Edinburgh is we're all on, we're all on the same team. So, someone's got a reagent, like they've got some spare of you, lend something? some. That's that's what you always do within the same institute because mm-hmm. that's you're all on the same team. But really. I mean, in a way, as as dementia researchers, we're we're all on the same team, yeah. and and the the UK Dementia Research Institute, the UK DRI, ha, is has been really good in in kind of forcing through that feeling that even cross institutionally uh, around the UK, we all really really are on the same team, and there's there's a lot of they're bringing opportunities in to, to fund uh, postdocs to work cross institution within the DRI, and and it's it's a really really exciting place to be working because they're they're making a big point out of out of funding what's potentially quite high risk, high reward mm. projects. Um, which for us as researchers, like I mean, that's that's really exciting. That's that's mm. the most exciting project. Cause they're the ones where you have this crazy idea and you're like, you know, this 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 might pay off and, and they're they're really pulling a lot of faith in us to to kind of come up with these ideas and, and really drive them through. Um, And it is really, we've got these little like um, permission to fail cards, which is a little bit kind of like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm probably over, overusing my permission to fail card sometimes. (laughs) Um, But, but it's, it's, it's part of the kind of the idea that they're trying to push through, which is really exciting. Uh, And then the other thing, which I think we've kind of wanted to talk about a little bit is, is that it's, although they are forcing this kind of like, you're on the same team thing. We're also being able to collaborate with people that, aren't um, technically within yeah. d- the DRI. The doors mm. are open. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, for example, Katie.
0: Yes, um. yes. So the Hallsborough Lab isn't part of the DRI. We're just downstairs on the floor below. Um, but we work really closely with the McCall Labs and with um, Giles Hardingham's group, who's also in Edinburgh in the DRI. Um, and yeah, that's great for us. Um, I mean, I've always thought it's heart science is meant to be collaborative, right? We'd get more done if we worked together. Um, and within one kind of building that's really easy to do you know people are working on similar things we've got similar ideas it's, it's easy to drive research forward but across different institutions in one country you know there are people with expertise that maybe we may not have in Edinburgh and if someone else in another DRI centre has that we can go to them and be like right great mm-hmm. so I need to exactly like, as Mathis was saying this is what I need to do can you help me do that and mm-hmm. that's you know that's how science should be it's mm-hmm. really exciting to be exposed to so many different people doing different things, and. I think for them to be so welcoming be like, yeah, that's great. Let's work together. Let's, you know, push our research forward and get where we need to be. And I think that's that's how science should be, at least mm. in my opinion.
3: And it sounds like a no-brainer, but this actually has not been the case huh? for most yeah. of science. So in, I think recently people were very, very close about their data. So they would mm. sit on data for many, many years mm. and just never release it until they're absolutely ready to publish it. And now this is saying, you know what? If we share this data with someone else, someone else can help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a way that we can actually find cures faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You take half the time yeah. to do something.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing is, right? It's, it's not about us as researchers. I mean, obviously oh, yeah. we love what we do, we think it's great, we're interested in the science, but you know, us sitting on data for a long period of time doesn't benefit anyone apart from ourselves. Absolutely. You know, we <laughs> yeah. get a high impact paper's great, but what does that mean for everybody else? And if you're pushing people to be more open about what they're doing, you know, it benefits the public, and
1: that's obviously what's more important. Mm. Great. So I think we're going to start to wrap up now. Um, it's been a really good discussion. I think we've heard quite a lot about uh, microglia and, and the role that they're playing um, in, in inflammation and in the diseases that are underpinning uh, dementia and actually how it's not going to be a really simple answer. It's We've got to understand the dynamic nature of these cells. We've got to understand how their role changes over time with the diseases. And actually, they're providing quite a lot of hope around new treatments and and the shift in focus away from protein aggregates to also how cellular function could support some of those changes. And I think it's also been really good to hear about the UK DRI and just how this new initiative is bringing kind of size and scale and this collaborative working on a grand scale and, and making sure that researchers here in the UK are supported to do amazing work. Um, so if people wanted to find out more about your work, I think you're all on Twitter, yeah. I'm right? like. Yeah. So yeah. do you want to yeah. share like your twin
0: yeah, so my Twitter handle is just my name. It's Catherine Askew. but my parents decided to spell Catherine weirdly. So I think it's going to be on the website with the podcast, um, which is probably the easiest way to look yeah. me up. But yeah, absolutely follow me on Twitter. I have two bunnies, which I tweet about all the time. So if you want to hear about microglia and bunnies, I'm kind of your girl. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I'm, I'm on at Mike underscore JD underscore Daniels. And, and also a, a plug for something else that It's quite close to my heart is, is working on um, public perception of science in the news. And we set up a project a couple of years ago called Have You Heard, which um, is haveyouhearduk.com. And there we we go out to groups when we talk about how research happens. We talk about the process from the lab through to press releases, through to what you read on a newspaper, and, and just try and try and have an open discussion with people about whether when you read something in the news, how much credence you can take from it.
1: Mm-hmm. Great.
3: And you can also find me on Twitter at uh, makistiaras, which I don't think anyone will be able to spell. <laughs> <laughs> That's M-A-K-I-S-T-Z-I-O-R-A-S.
1: Uh, yeah, so all the um, uh, all the panelists' profiles will be um, available for you and all their Twitter details as well. If you want to follow me, most of my stuff is about public engagement. So I'm very much focused on getting the incredible science these guys do out there. Um, and I'm, I can't actually remember what my handle is which is terrible <laughs> it's on the profile you can read it there I have to say it's been a long week so yeah brain's not all there um, so yeah you can find out all the details of the panellists um, and finally I always like to say this bit please uh, remember to subscribe rate and review the podcast it helps other people find it uh, tell your friends and colleagues it's on SoundCloud and iTunes and come back in two weeks time for the next instalment thank you This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher, everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.